Mountain to Mountain, we are Radio Catskill. Good evening and welcome to the local edition live from Radio Catskill Studios in Liberty, New York. I'm your host, Jason Dole. Coming up, we have an update on the big story that we talked about last night. The recent grand jury investigation into the death of a 16-month-old child in Sullivan County. County District Attorney Brian Connolly had a press conference today. We'll hear from that coming up in the second half of the program. Also, we'll check in with Spotlight PA as they look at what's before the Pennsylvania legislature in 2024, especially funding for schools. But first on a Thursday evening, joining us live on the phone... Managing Editor Philip Pantuso of the Hudson Valley Bureau of the Times Union. Philip, welcome back to the local edition. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So here we are on a Thursday again, live, totally live on air. Um, so you have an update on the story about a Poughkeepsie woman who shot her husband because he abused her? Yeah, this is um, this is news we learned on Friday, last Friday, um, in a pretty high-profile case. Uh, concerning a woman named Nicole or Nikki Adamondo. So Nikki Adamondo, she uh, was a 35 or is a 35-year-old woman. In 2017, she shot her partner, who's the father of her two young children, a man named Christopher Grover. And um, she confessed. She's never denied that she shot him. Um, But what she has always claimed is that Christopher Grover kind of routinely abused her um, both physically and sexually and that she killed him essentially as a way to escape that abuse. Um, She was initially sentenced. So she was found guilty um, and she was initially sentenced to 19 years to life. And in 2021, that sentence was reduced uh, by an appeals court here in New York to seven and a half years. That included time served. Um, And the rationale for reducing the sentence was um, under the state uh, Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act. Essentially, this appeals court had substantiated that she did face abuse and that she was a survivor of domestic violence. Um, so she, that would have taken her to about the end of this year for, um, her seven and a half year sentence, but she also got a six month time allowance for, uh, for good behavior behind bars and for completing this program where she trained service dogs. So all of those things told, um, she was able to, to walk free on uh, on Thursday, actually. We found out about it um, Friday morning and wrote up the story, um, which, yeah, good good news for, for her, certainly, and um, for all of the people who have been advocating on her behalf. I, I mentioned earlier that her case has attracted a lot of attention. Um, there's a group of supporters that have for the last couple of years, been appealing to the governor for clemency for Nikki Adamondo and have been kind of pushing her story out in the media. Um, probably like she was the subject of a New Yorker story. Um, there has been a podcast that, that looked at her case and probably most notably uh, last February, I think it was, 
2020 did a, a big piece about her. It's kind of been held up as an example, maybe, of some gaps or, or loopholes in how states prosecute people who are trying to escape um, abusive situations. Um, so, so yeah, she, she is out. Um, she, she's on, uh, she's on parole for, um, parole supervision for the next five years. Um, but she is, uh, no longer behind bars. Wow. And as you say, this highlights the broader issue of criminalized survivors, that this is something that's going on out there. But as you say, this story is, is kind of become representative of something that's actually happening to other people as well. Yeah, yeah. That New Yorker story I mentioned earlier um, looks at a couple of other high-profile cases that have similar facts and circumstances. Um, and there's any number of, of podcasts and documentaries that um, trace very similar stories that other women have faced. Okay, and on to another story. I heard that uh, pro-Palestinian uh, protesters uh, got essentially rowdy outside of uh, Representative Pat Ryan's office, actually tried to forcibly enter the office. You're, can you just give people the idea of what actually happened here? Because your reporting is indicating that um, there's different accusations coming from different directions here. Yeah, there's kind of two sides to this story, and we tried to get to, to the bottom of it as best we could. Um, you know, across really across all, all of New York State and across the country, there have been, um, you know, marches and rallies in, uh, in support of Palestinians in Gaza, calling for a ceasefire to Israel's campaign there. There have, of course, been um, uh, actions to support the hostages that Hamas took as well. In the Mid-Hudson Valley, these actions have increasingly targeted uh, Congressman Pat Ryan um, for a number of reasons. He's, he's a combat veteran. He has, he's a member of the House Armed Services Committee. He's been a vocal supporter of Israel, um, both before and after the attacks on October 7th. And in the last couple of months, there have been um, at least three rallies outside of his district offices in Kingston, Newburgh, and Poughkeepsie and a couple of instances of vandalism on his Newburgh office. Uh, somebody spray-painted a uh, war criminal on that, uh, on that um, office. The latest action was on Friday evening in Kingston, in uptown Kingston, where there was a rally of about 150 people um, that began at the county office building, um, and then they marched uptown um, to Wall Street in a where Pat Ryan has a, a Kingston district office. Um, the rally was peaceful. The police were there. There was no accusations about anything untoward at the rally itself. No arrests or no arrests were made, no threats, nothing like that. The same thing you kind of see at all these like chanting and banners and stuff like that. Um, but kind of at the end of the rally, about 12 of the demonstrators went into the building where Pat Ryan has an office and went upstairs um, where they had an encounter with a couple of constituent services staffers. Now, Pat Ryan was not present at the time, but he later characterized this encounter um, as in pretty, pretty alarming terms. He said that these protesters had 
forcibly entered the district office in Kingston, had climbed on the on the roof and directly threatened staff. Um, and he said that the, his staffers were fearful for their safety. Um, now, no one's disputing that they climbed the roof. There's photos of people on the roof dropping down banners. And nobody's disputing that they went into the uh, to the district office um, and tried to meet with Pat Ryan. Um, but what the protesters are saying is that it was peaceful, the door was open, um, and that basically they went up to try to have a conversation with their congressman, their elected representative, um, and uh, to sort of make known to his staff when they realized he wasn't there what it was that they were calling for. Um, one of the demonstrators shared a 23-minute video that shows the entire encounter with us. Um, I wouldn't say that it's a, it's a particularly constructive dialogue, but um, it doesn't appear that any threats are made. Um, it doesn't appear that any of the demonstrators forcibly entered the office. They never actually made it into the office. They had this whole conversation at the doorway um, where one of the staffers was kind of holding the door closed. Um, Nevertheless, a couple of people, including Pat Ryan's chief of staff, filed, um, or deputy chief of staff, sorry, filed police reports. Um, the, the Kingston Police and the Ulster County Sheriff's Office wouldn't comment on whether they're looking into this yet. Um, but uh, I don't think this is going to be a, the end of this story because, um, you know, in the aftermath of this, particularly in light of Pat Ryan's statement, which came out about 24 hours later, a number of activists and protesters on the left in the Hudson Valley have called him a liar, have kind of just amped up the calls that they had already been making, that he should support a ceasefire and that he should call for an end to U.S. military aid to Israel. Um, I don't think that's happening anytime soon, judging from the interview that he did with us here at the Times Union a couple of months ago. He has outlined what he calls like a plan for peace. Um, you know, I won't get into all of those details, but it's, it's basically a, um, you know, a, a two state solution. Um, so yeah, I think there's probably going to be more to this story. Has the congressman's position been changing at all? Noticeably is, is, is what he's saying or is his position substantively changing over the last month in light of all of this feedback and protest? Um, I think that he, I think it's fair to say that his position has maybe become a bit more nuanced. So, you know, he, he did a pretty lengthy and substantive interview with, with us at the Times Union in, um, in about mid-November, a little after a month uh, after the October 7th attack. Um, and in that interview, he sort of just explained his position about how it takes two to agree to to peace and that Hamas had ended uh, what had been a peaceful situation in his words. I don't, I'm not sure that that's what many Palestinians would say. Um, but he didn't have too much, too much detail about what that would take. So the, uh, the, the plan that he has since outlined um, he said could achieve what he called a permanent and mutual peace if there's a new government in Gaza 
if Israel allows for more humanitarian aid to come into Gaza, if Hamas surrenders, if uh, Hamas returns all hostages. Um, and uh, I think the thing that he has added to this that I hadn't seen him say previously is he says this peace could be achieved with an end to settler violence, quote unquote, in the West Bank. So this is, of course, the uh, Israeli settlements that have been going into the West Bank, encroaching on Palestinian territory and kind of turning that half of the Palestinian, um, you know, would-be state into a sort of chock-a-block of contested territory. Um, he's also called for, you know, justice on both sides. So, you know, for Hamas October 7th perpetrators to be prosecuted, but also for um, for for Israeli settlers who commit violence to be prosecuted as well. Um, so that's, yeah, I, th- I think he's, he's certainly like adding more nuance and deepening some of his response, but he's still coming some way short of what at least the far left flank of his constituency is calling for. Yeah. And, uh, and it's the start of an election year too. So that's how we're starting out. Here. <laughs> oh, don't um, I know it. We've only got two minutes for this. You can spend a couple minutes uh, talking about uh, the, a judge uh, uh, accused of misappropriating funds in Athens, New York. That's just north of Catskill, just across the river from Hudson. Can you tell us quick what that's about? Yeah, this is kind of a goofy story that um, I wrote up uh, earlier this week. A, uh, a judge on the Athens town court, um, he awarded a no-bid contract to his own company for courthouse improvements, and then he falsified and, improved, and approved an invoice for the work, um, all without disclosing his personal financial interests and while overriding the quite vocal and apparent concerns uh, voiced by the town clerk. So this was all detailed in a report that came out last week by the State Commission on Judicial Conduct. Basically, this guy owns a construction and installation company, and he assigned uh, this work at the courthouse to his own company lied on the invoice about how much he spent doing it and then approved the invoice once it came back <laughs> um, for payout. Um, the state commission on judicial conduct is recommending that he uh, be removed uh, from office. His term in Athens already expired, but if he's removed from office, then that means uh, he can't ever serve on the bench again, according to New York State's Constitution. So, you know, just the latest in uh, a long line of small town judicial misconduct. Sure, sure. Just another just another first week of January uh, in upstate yeah. New York. Yeah, well, we're, yeah. we're talking to Philip Pantuso, managing editor for the Hudson Valley Bureau of the Times Union. Uh, that story, Athens Town Judge Misappropriated Town Funds Report Finds, and all the stories we've been talking about are up now at timesunion.com. Philip, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. You got it. Take care. Well, this is the local edition. When we come back, we'll have an update on uh, that story about the grand jury report here in Sullivan County. District Attorney Brian Connolly making a statement earlier today. Uh, and then we'll get into our uh, regular check-in with Spotlight PA. Do stay with us. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local.
WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Radio Catskill. Local news, culture, and NPR. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s final Sunday sermon was titled, Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution. Today, woke is at the center of our culture wars and divided political discourse. I'm Kai Wright, host of Notes from America. Join me as we look at how this word will shape politics in 2024. It's WNYC's 18th annual celebration of Dr. King from the Apollo Theater in Harlem. Sunday night at 6 with a replay Monday morning at 10 on Radio Catskill. I'm Aaron Bendich. Join me for Borscht Beat, the Jewish music show on Radio Catskill. Each week I share rare, forgotten, and classic recordings from Jewish musical traditions across multiple generations. From Yiddish folk songs to instrumental klezmer, Yiddish theater, and contemporary performances. It's a grand tour of many musical landscapes. That's Borscht Beat, an hour of Jewish music in the Catskills, Sunday afternoons at 1 on Radio Catskill. Welcome back to the Local Edition. I'm Jason Dole. Coming up, we're going to talk to Spotlight PA about school funding in Pennsylvania. But first, we do have an update on the big story that Ruby Rayner covered on the local edition last night, and that's the recent grand jury investigation into the death of a 16-month-old child in Sullivan County who was under the supervision of Child Protective Services, or CPS. Sullivan County District Attorney Brian Connedy held a press conference in Monticello today to go over the findings in the grand jury's report, especially the question of why the child was not removed from that home and also the report's series of recommendations to address these issues and prevent similar tragedies from occurring in the future. Here's D.A. Connedy. On January 4th, 2024, Sullivan County Court Judge Jim Farrell accepted for public filing a 100-page grand jury report recommending legislative, executive, or administrative action be taken in the public interest. The impetus of this investigation was the untimely and tragic death of a 16-month-old child who, along with her family, was under the supervision of CPS. Based on the facts learned during the investigation into her death, as well as the significant rate of positive toxicology babies born in Sullivan County, it was incumbent upon law enforcement and the district attorney's office to determine the basis for the decision to deny the request for removal and whether this tragedy could have been prevented. Ultimately, the grand jury concluded that this death was preventable. As a result of this comprehensive investigation, the grand jury found that the office of the county attorney as DSS's and CPS's legal branch violated its ethical obligations to competently represent the department's needs. The grand jury recommended the following legislative, executive, or administrative action to be taken in the public interest. One, that the county attorney's office should be divested of all responsibility of CPS's legal representation and DFS's legal department should be reinstituted as it previously existed. Two, there should be an annual reporting process created for CPS as to the quality of their legal representation. Three, there should be a complete rethinking of the use of motels to house vulnerable populations in Sullivan County. Four, Sullivan County should create its own drug treatment facility. Five, CPS should obtain the ability to test their clients in-house. And six, the Sullivan County Legislature should create its own legislative subcommittee to work to facilitate local Sullivan County hospitals adopting the double doctor override from maternal refusal to accept drug testing at delivery and refusing drug testing of an infant experiencing withdrawals. In short, the grand jury concluded that under the office of the county attorney, their leadership, children all across 
Salton County are exposed to unnecessary risk of harm owing to repeated breaches of its ethical duties to competently represent DSS and CPS. Thank you to Bill Liblick for the audio and the video for that report. You can see the full press conference on Radio Catskill's YouTube channel. Just search for WJFF Radio Catskill on YouTube. And be listening tomorrow morning at 10 for more news and information from Sullivan County when County Communications Director Dan Hoost joins Tim Bruno live on Radio Chatskill. Up next, it's a new year and Pennsylvania lawmakers are gearing up for significant changes in permitting processes. This is a crucial constitutional amendment, potential overhaul of the education funding system for the Commonwealth. One hurdle is a court ruling declaring the state's education funding system unconstitutionally inequitable. Katie Meyer is a reporter from Spotlight PA, and she spoke to Radio Catskills' Patricio Rabayo. And Katie started off with a breakdown on these issues that are facing lawmakers in PA in the new year. Basically, what's important to understand about where the legislature is right now is they're not in session. They're going to have a pretty long break before they're back to voting. The main reason, honestly, is because the House has a leak over its chamber, they say, and they can't use it for a while. So they have called out and uh, they're not going to vote until it's fixed. It happens also that the House is waiting for a special election that's going to fill a vacant seat. So anyway, while that's happening, though, there is a lot still going on, mainly But I think you wanted to talk about this, so I'll let you lead into it. But there was a major lawsuit last year that basically the ruling was that Pennsylvania has to overhaul its school funding system, its public school funding system. And so lawmakers are currently figuring out a way to deal with it. Basically, these lawmakers have been meeting for months now. They did um, hearings around the state. They have put their heads together. And whatever they come out with is going to possibly be a little bit of a roadmap and it'll give us an idea of what to expect in the coming session. Again, in this uh, in this ruling that came out last year, essentially the judge said that Pennsylvania's public education system is unconstitutionally unfair. And so more funding was needed, but also maybe a change in how funding is distributed. So those are the kind of things that we'll be looking for in that report. And Spotlight P is going to have a lot more on that when it is out. The bill is addressing the minimum wage, the LGBTQ protections, and gun purchase background checks. How likely are these bills to progress, considering the current political landscape we have now? Yeah, that's a good question. So these are things the Democrats have named as their top priorities for the session. They have already passed versions of bills that would do those things. But the question mark, as always, is the Senate. So we have a divided legislature. The House is controlled by Democrats. The Senate is controlled by Republicans. The Republicans have not considered these, at least they haven't said that they consider these to be priorities. So we've gotten really no indication that they're going to move them. uh, And I would be surprised if they did. But that being said, things can come out of deals. You never know. And you you mentioned about the roof leak because that's not the first time I heard about it. We had another reporter on Spotlight from Spotlight PA talk about this. What is the timeline on that roof repair? They said like a pipe had burst over the house chamber. I believe they said it was going to be until like, March that it was going to be fixed. And so, you know, you never know how that's going to go. But yeah, they are out of the chamber. They're actually, they're doing, they have to do a joint session next month for the governor's state of the state address. And that's going to happen in the rotunda instead of in the house where it usually is. So it's just a funny problem. Definitely. Okay. And that permitting and regulatory reform seems to be the primary focus for the state Senate, right? Yes. When I spoke to, um, 
Senate members and staff a little while ago, basically that was the big thing that they talked about. This is a longtime priority for a lot of Republicans. The idea behind permitting and regulatory reform is just to give um, businesses and, and other private entities an easier path to do whatever it is that they're doing in, in terms of getting land set up, building pipelines, getting permits for various things. So it's one of the bills, it would require agencies to make more information public about the status of permits so people can track them. One would require legislative approval of more regulations. Right now, the governor can hand down regulations unilaterally. And one would create what's called an automatic review process for a lot of regulations. All of this is essentially designed to A, speed up permitting and permit approvals, and also be make it harder to pass new layers of bureaucracy in a lot of places. So more transparency. Government. That's part of it. But again, I think it, it's more like giving private interests a, a little bit more power over doing what they want to do and also taking away some layers of state red tape. And again, that's not something that Democrats are necessarily on board with. In environmental concerns, for instance, the permitting process for laying a pipeline, or that's the kind of thing that we start talking about as a major point of contention. People think there should be a lot of layers of red tape to make sure that things are safe and make sure the environmental impact is not too bad, that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Just, just like I'm sure Pennsylvania is seeing there's such a influx of growth and development, uh, here and where we are on this side of the river in Sullivan County, uh, this is such an influx of, of development happening. And, and so those are some of the conversations that are happening in town board meetings about, uh, yeah. old laws that are in effect that are now are not keeping up with the times and not keeping up with the, the, uh, the potential of future development that, and that puts strain on, yeah, uh, yeah. infrastructure. And that's another part of this, too. There's a lot of old laws on the books. People often, it can be difficult to revisit them legislatively and figure out if they're still working. And that's always been a big project in the legislature. And Republicans have often taken the lead on that. Absolutely. Now, looking ahead, what sort of what challenges and opportunities do you foresee in the legislature's efforts to reshape Pennsylvania's education funding system? Yeah, that's I think the education question is huge. Basically, what we're looking at right now is a system where it's sort of a twofold issue, as was laid out in that court ruling. We distribute education funding here in Pennsylvania in a way that is based on an outdated formula. We use, for the vast majority of funding that comes from the state, a formula that uses population data from like the 90s. And what that means is that, for example, if a school district has since shrunk or another one has since grown, they're not getting the requisite amount of funding. Now, we do have a new updated formula, but that's only used for new funding. It has been since like 2016. So again, still the vast majority of funding uses this old outdated formula. And so that's been part of negotiations. The other thing that people are talking about is just increasing the overall amount of money that's going to education in this commonwealth. And it's this is not a small amount of money that's being discussed. It's in the billions, $4 billion, $6 billion. And there's, I, I think, a lot of disagreement over exactly how much money is reasonable to put into education in response to this lawsuit. And also another factor here is uh, school choice. So a lot of Republicans, a lot of conservatives, a lot of conservative activists have really been pushing for measures that would give public money to private schools, essentially, to give parents options for getting scholarships to send their kids to a private school instead of a public school. And this has been a huge point of contention. It blew up the budget negotiations this year. And basically, the kind of conflict there is that on the pro-school choice side, as they're often called, um, you know, the issue is, oh, your parents should have the opportunity to like send their kids wherever they want to send them. 
on the public school side, they say this completely weakens public education and eventually will probably take money away from public education. The teachers unions are very against this kind of proposal, huge point of contention. So that's something we'll be watching. But yeah, it's just a hard issue. Again, looking forward to seeing what this initial report says. Yeah, absolutely. Katie, before we go, is there anything else I have not touched on you want folks to know about this issue and or things you are working on for Spotlight PA? Yeah, one thing I'll just point out again, in the kind of grand scheme of what's happening in the legislature, there's a constitutional amendment that's been in process for a really long time now. It would create a two-year window for uh, victims of child sexual abuse who are abused as children to sue, even if the statute of limitations has expired on their case. And if a lot of listeners might feel this is familiar, and it is because it goes back a long time. Now, uh, there was an error a couple of years ago that kept this off of the ballot. It, uh, constitutional amendments need to be voted on by voters. And uh, this year, it could pass. It could get back to the ballot. Um, however, there is conflict between the House and the Senate over other items to include in this amendment. The Senate's trying to put like voter ID and unrelated provisions in there. And the House has said they don't want to pass it that way. So waiting to see if they can come to an agreement on that. We're talking to Katie Meyer from Spotlight PA about what's happening in the permitting process in Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for joining us on the program. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Patricio Fat Report. Thank you to Spotlight PA. You can find Spotlight PA's article on our website, wjffradio.org. That's it for the local edition. Thank you so much for listening. Do keep on listening and always catch our live stream at wjffradio.org. Up next, we've got The Daily, followed by Ramble Tamble. This is Radio Catskill. Radio Catskill supporters include Sullivan Catskills Visitors Association, SullivanCatskills.com, Catskill Brewery, brewing ales, lagers, and mixed fermentation beers in a LEED Gold certified building, plus a food truck and beer garden at exit 96 off Route 17 in Livingston Manor. CatskillBrewery.com And listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org